we can look at human history and understand they already happened in our past. But when this was written, none of these things have happened yet. So as we read through some of this tonight, you're going to hear about uh, a ruler from the north and a ruler from the south and this kingdom and battles and marriages and lies and all of these things that look like a big old soap opera. All of this stuff for Daniel didn't make a whole lot of sense to him. None of it but now we have the benefit of looking back on history as scholars and historians and being able to say, oh, the prophecy that Daniel saw, this is actually how it played out in human history. So let's jump into verse 1 here. It says, And as for me, in the first year of Darius, this is the angel speaking, but in the first year of Darius to me, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has come, become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. So we're just kind of jumping right into there where he's talking about kingdoms, and he's talking about riches, and he's talking about this guy, Darius the Mede, who was the ruler at that time. And what we have going on here is that we've got this, this kingdom, this kind of, somebody's come to power, and then their power has fallen apart. And now it says right there in verse 2, it says, Three more kings shall arise in Persia. If you follow along with us in this book so far, you've seen multiple rulers. It started with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians coming in and taking over Israel and taking all of their youngest and brightest people, taking them back to Babylon and training them up to be Babylonians. That's who Daniel is. That's where he's come from. That's what he's experienced. That's what his buddies experienced. And in that process, you see that kingdom flourish, but then another group came in. The Medes and the Persians came in and took over that kingdom, and then another group came in, and then another group came in. And we could look at history and see how all of that played out. But this angel is saying, hey, here's what's going to happen in the future. And he talks about the fact that this one king is toppled, and three more kings arise in Persia. And history tells us that three kings did arise, and they were guys that had really weird names. There were Candaces, Smyrtus, and Darius. Anybody gonna name their kids those names? Well, I, I, I'll pay you five dollars if you do. Okay. Five bucks. Five bucks. I would love to see that. So we can look at history. Daniel's looking at this going, what in the world is he talking about three kings? But we can look at history and know that when that king of Persia fell, three other guys rose up and took over that kingdom. And then after that, there was another king, a guy by the name of Xerxes. Y'all heard that name before? That's just a fun one to say. You got Xerxes who came to power. And listen to this. Right there at the end of verse 2, it says, He shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Well, if you study history, you find out that Xerxes is the one who actually invaded Greece and tried to take over. So you see from our history the future that Daniel was promised right here. And then it goes on in verse 3. It says, Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Again, we go back to history, and we see between these verses, really between verse 2 and 3, we see continuity. We see that it's reading just right along on the page. But history tells us there's about a 150-year gap between verses 2 and 3. So what looks very closely related to us, there's actually a big time frame. And what it's talking about is that mighty king that comes 
comes in, we've talked about this guy before. Y'all heard of Alexander the Great before? Someone may have heard of Alexander the Great before. If you were here for some of this as we walk through it, chapter 8, we spent a good chunk of that night talking about Alexander the Great. He was a guy that came to power, and he basically worked to conquer the known world at that time. And he did it when he was young. He died at the age of 33. That's young. And Alexander the Great had conquered so much of the known world. And when he died, his sons took over, but his sons were murdered. And then four of his generals took over, and they had power, but none of them were ever as powerful as Alexander the Great was. So that's what it's talking about when it says that not to not his posterity, nor according to the authority in which he ruled for his kingdom, shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So we look back and we think, Daniel's looking at this going, what in the world is this talking about? In fact, later in the chapter, he asks the angel, please help me understand this. And we look back at it and we can say, man, look at how history played out. Look at how God told Daniel so many years exactly what was going to happen before it ever happened. And here's where we start to speed up. Because if you look at these two chapters, Daniel chapter 11, I think, has about 44, 45 verses. Daniel chapter 12. There we go. Daniel chapter 12, I got fingers pointing up there, has 13 verses. Well, we're not going to read 50 plus verses tonight. So I'm going to summarize some of this for you, but you can kind of follow along as we walk through this. As you look at verses 5 through 12 there, you start seeing references like um, the north and the south. You start hearing about the ruler of the north and the ruler of the south. Again, for Daniel, this wouldn't have made sense, but for us, we can look back, and in this time frame, what we see play out is this is talking about the ongoing tension that happened at that time between the countries of Egypt and Syria. And that ongoing conflict, the reason it matters in Scripture, the reason it matters for us, is because Israel was caught in between those two countries warring against each other. Because those countries, at some point in time, had influence over the Israelite nation. So you're basically looking at a civil war. When we think about the North and the South, and we think of the American Civil War. Well, that's not the original North and the South. We see it happening right here in Scripture. This king of the North would have been um, a reference to the leader of Syria. And the king of the south would have been a reference to the leader of Egypt. And like many nations that would war, they go to war, they have an attempted peace. You see proposals where we're going to do peace this way. In fact, if you follow along these verses, you find out that there was a proposal that one of these guys' daughters was going to marry the other guy to try to bring peace. And we're going to get into that in just a second. But as you look through here, you start to see some crazy stuff happen. You see that the, uh, the ruler of Egypt... The ruler of Egypt was supposed to marry the, the daughter, excuse me, the daughter of the ruler of Egypt was supposed to marry the ruler of Syria. That's how they were going to have peace. But here's the crazy part about that. History tells us that Antiochus, the guy who was the ruler of Syria at that time, he was already married. You see a problem there? Well, his wife did too. Because apparently history shows us that his wife proceeded to murder him. And his new wife. And the child that they had. She was a little irritated, don't you think? Ladies, would y'all be upset something like that? Yeah, I would so. Okay? Hey, hey, that's just verses 5 and 6. We haven't even made it to 12 yet. If you keep going through there, verses 7 through 9, it keeps going. Guys, it's a 
chapter 9 talk about how the murdered woman's brother seeks revenge. He invades Syria. He wins the battle in Syria. And he goes back to Egypt with all kinds of treasure and even some of the sacred idols that they worship. So this is just going back and forth. And then the ruler of Egypt tries to retaliate against him and he loses. And that's just up through verse 9. There's all kinds of crazy stuff going on here. And this is history. This is what actually happened. Verses 10 through 12 tell us about the continuum. There's back and forth that happened over the following years. And over time, you see different kingdoms rise up. And at one point, this kingdom looks like they're going to be victorious. And then this kingdom does. And really, during that whole time, the kingdom of Egypt is the one that kind of rules and reigns. They kind of keep winning all of these skirmishes. But then when we get to verse 13, that's where things change. And we start to see Syria have some success. Look at what it says in verse 13. It says, For the king of the north shall rise again, there shall again raise a multitude, greater than the first. And after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand for even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. So these, these civilizations have come up against each other again, and now instead of Egypt being ahead and seeming victorious, now Syria begins to become victorious. And here's why that matters, because all of this in the realm of history sets up the reign for a You've heard of Antiochus, but you haven't heard of Antiochus III. He's not the guy we talked about in chapter 8 when we walked through that. And we're going to get to him in just a second. But what scripture tells us is that guy, he was so successful, he had so many different places that he conquered that he went back to his homeland and then he started branching out into the Mediterranean and starting to conquer some of those lands. But then scripture tells us that in doing that, or history tells us, he comes up somebody from the Roman, against somebody from the Roman Empire. And during those days when you come up against the Roman Empire, chances are you weren't going to succeed for very long. In fact, there's a commander in the Roman Empire, history tells us his name was um, Lucius Cornelius Scipio. That sounds like a pretty cool name. Definitely name your kid Scipio. Somebody, please. You know, Lucia that. I'm holding you to that. Alright? But that's the commander. If you read through the verse 18, it talks about how they're going to come up against opposition. That's the commander it's talking about. And what happens is in that in that 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 skirmish where you've got the Antiochus and you've got this Roman guy, as they start to come together in battle, what happens is Antiochus is defeated and he dies and he's replaced by his son. But then in verse 20 of this chapter right here, it talks about how that next ruler will not be killed in or in battle. You know why that is? Because his son was poisoned. So he wasn't killed in anger and he wasn't killed in battle. It's amazing how we can look at scripture and look at history and see how they line up perfectly. And so far you've got a lot of different rulers and if you look at all of those rulers their actions are set on honoring themselves and have nothing to do with God's honor and God's glory. And that's important for us. We can learn from that because when we look at this, we understand very quickly when our main goal in life is to honor ourselves and elevate ourselves and build a kingdom and a name for ourselves, 
quite often that goes pretty badly. Even if we have success for a time, even if things go well for a while, it's going to come with consequences that are not the things that we want to have happen in our life. As those rulers fought for power, all the while what they were doing is they were ignoring the ones who had ultimate power and authority. They sought to build their own kingdom, and because of that, you see how history plays out. Now it begins to shift here, and we're going through this quickly. In verse 21, you've got Antiochus' son who was prophesied to die in verse 20, and he does, but that sets the stage for the next ruler. That's the guy we talked about in chapter 8. That's Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. He's the bad guy that we talked about. He's the one that went after the Jewish people. Verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. Antiochus IV of Epiphanes, he was a bad guy. He's the one that went after Jewish people. It tells us right here where it says he even went, even the prince of the covenant. History tells us that he came in and he killed a guy by the name of Onius III, who was the rightful high priest in Jerusalem at the time. So that was the prince of the covenant. That was God's high priest right there. And that's what this guy does. And he goes out and he does these things. It says scripture, or history tells us he makes a false treaty with Egypt. That's that whole part about, uh, where is it, the fiery? He shall come in without warning and obtain kingdom by flatteries. He makes this false treaty. He lies to him. He conquers. He plunders. But again, he needs opposition when he comes up against Rome. As Romans 11 29 tells us this it says, At the time of place, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. The ships of Katim shall come against him. And he shall be afraid and withdraw. And he shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Antiochus is waging war against the world, and he runs up against Rome and meets resistance, and he's forced to go home. He doesn't get to campaign and, and conquer like he's trying to do. And when he did, now his attention is turned from everything that's going on outside of where he is to everything that's going on right where he is. And the problem is that's where the Jewish people are. And he doesn't honor God. He doesn't worship God. He doesn't seek God. So what he does is he turns his attention on the Jewish people. The scripture tells us right there, and history tells us, he uses flattery to draw some of them to his side. And at the same time, he killed thousands of Jewish people that opposed him. They were caught in the middle. In between these two kingdoms that we started with at the beginning of this chapter. And this went on until he died at what scripture references in verse 35 as his appointed time. He did his best to demolish the Jewish people while he was hanging. And then we start to see a shift in this book. Scholars tell us that in verse 36, it moves from the angel talking about these are the earthly human kingdoms that we're talking about, and these are the rulers that you need to know are coming one day. And scripture and theologians tell us that in verse 36, you see a shift from that earthly mindset to the kingdom mindset, where the angel is no longer talking about for us what is history. He's talking about what for Daniel and for us for yes time. He's talking about the end of days. He's talking about the end of time. He's talking about the return of Christ and how all of that plays out. 
And look at what it says here in verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. And shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of deeds, a god whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. Theologians look at this and they say, that's, that's the Antichrist. That king who's not going to bow to other gods. That king who's going to exalt himself above everything and everyone, including the one true God. And he's going to draw people to himself and he's going to reward those people that serve him. And as you continue in those next couple of verses, verses 40 through 44, it talks about the, the campaign of conquest that the future Antichrist is going to have. That it's going to look like he is conquering the world, that his kingdom is victorious, but we know the truth from Scripture. We know that even when it looks like that, that's not the end that's unavoidable for any Christ. Because verse 45 says this, And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. See, that for Daniel was future, but that's also future for us. Because that's something that's going to happen one day. That's something that as you read this and you start looking at the book of Revelation as well, you see how these things pair together to show us the promises that God has made. And that brings us to chapter 12, the final chapter of this book. Look at verse 1. It says, At that time shall arise mockery. Remember, Michael is one of God's angels. It says, The great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such has never been since there was a nation until that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn away or turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and free, fro, and knowledge shall increase. What that angel was describing to Daniel there is that there's going to be a day when there are going to be trials in this world and it's going to happen to every single person in existence. It's going to be hard. And we think, you know, we've got hard times now. We see wars, and we see death, and we see disease. But Scripture tells us it's going to get a whole lot worse before God makes everything better. And he's helping Daniel understand here, this is what you're going to see, because he says there's hope. There's hope found in the promise that God will rescue his people. That's what he's talking about right here when he says, at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. 
talking about when Jesus comes back. He's talking about when the dead in Christ. Scripture tells us the dead in Christ will rise. All of those people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, all those Old Testament people that have counted righteousness because of their faith, Scripture tells us they will stand before God. They will see because they believed in Him and trusted in Him. And it also tells us that everyone who turned away from God will also stand before God. And Scripture says on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You can choose to ignore God now, but guess what? One day, you don't have a choice just have the opportunity to leave now. That's what he's talking about here. That's what he's helping Daniel understand. And he says, take these words and shut these words up. Seal the book. Theologians believe that what the angel was telling Daniel to do was to take these things he's learned, write these things down, so that people coming after him can see the prophecy and the promise of God and be able to look at history and see how God showed exactly what this was going to do. And so that we can look forward and know that God's made promises for the future of our world and our eternity. And here's the thing is, Daniel saw these visions, Daniel heard these visions, and he didn't understand everything that he heard and saw. And that's why it's okay that we say that we may not understand everything that we can do. Because Daniel was right here, he had an angel of God talking to him, and he still asks in the next couple of verses, uh, verses 5 through 12, he asks for clarification, and he gets even more information that scholars to this day can't agree on. As you go through those verses, the angel starts throwing out numbers about days. He talks about, uh, where's that number? How there's going to be 1,290 days at one point, and then he talks about how there's going to be 1,335 days at another point, and then he says, but Daniel, go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. So he gives Daniel, when Daniel says, help me understand this, the angel says, nope, I'm going to give you some more information that's confusing. And Daniel takes it, and Daniel writes it down, and then the angel gives him that command. Go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Basically, Daniel is told, continue living faithfully to the end of your days. Until the day that you die, continue to follow God. Continue to live obediently, Continue to live faithfully. And Daniel can do that, resting in the promise that God has always and will always have a plan for his life because God is sovereign. We get a picture of Daniel's life starting at the age of 15, 16 years old, and we get to follow him all the way through until he's in his late 80s. And he's lived under king after king who is not honored God. And he's had opportunity after opportunity to jump into the culture and to do everything else that the world was doing and do everything else that was going to promote him and help him and build his own kingdom. And what we see time after time is Daniel is on his before God. And Daniel submits his life. And Daniel lives obediently and faithfully until his time is over. Here's why that matters for us. 17 weeks after we have started this book of history and prophecy, it comes down to this. God knows the details. Because God is sovereign. Because God is the creator of everything. There is nothing that happens in human history that is a surprise to God. He knows the details of all of human history past. 
He knows the details of everything that's happening right now, and he knows the details of everything that will ever happen. He showed us that right here in this book. He knows the rulers, he knows the wars, he knows the celebrations, he knows the tragedies. He already knows how everything for all of humanity will play out all the way until the end of time. And if he knows all of those details, that he can give such detailed information so many years before some of those things happen, you need to understand that you can trust that he knows every detail of your life. That there is nothing about your life that is a surprise to God. No matter what has happened in your past, whether it's been good or whether it's been incredibly hurt, whether you've had a family with parents who have been married and they've raised you and they've loved you and they've taken care of you and they've given you every opportunity, or whether your family life fell apart a long time ago. God knew about all of it. And God is using that to write your story. God is using that to pull you towards Him so that you can live a life that honors Him and submit to Him, and He can use you to show other people who He is. If Daniel could trust God and be obedient, as a young teenage slave in captivity until the time that he died in a culture that did not push him towards God, so can we. Because God knows all the details. And you can have the same confidence of what the angels told Daniel more than once, that you are greatly loved by God. And you are known by God. And that's a knowledge and that's a confidence and a peace that you can rest in starts when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It starts by understanding that when you know that you're a sinner, when you ask God to forgive you of your sin, when you believe and trust in the fact that Jesus, who laid down his life on a cross, took the punishment for our sin, and then three days later took his life back up on his own power because he is God in the flesh, he paid the price that you and I so that you have a relationship with him. So that you can live in his mercy. So that you can live in his grace. Trusting his plan for your life. He knows you. He loves you. He has created you on purpose for a purpose. The question is, much like Daniel had to answer over and over again, will you trust him? Will you trust him when it doesn't Will you trust him when your situation is anything but what you want it to be? Will you trust that God knows the details of your life, God has a plan for your life, and he simply wants you to rest in that relationship with him? And it starts by putting your faith in him. We believe that tonight, that we've never done that before. We follow him in the most significant way you can, in the rest of your life, and see what God has for you. God, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word, God. We thank you for books like Daniel that, God, quite frankly, they're hard to understand. And yet, God, you give us your word to help us understand your word. God, we thank you for that word that shows us that, that even as a teenager, God, you can be trusted when the world is falling apart. And God, you can be trusted through things that don't make sense. You can be trusted through accusations. You can be trusted through threats of death. God, you can be trusted when 